Welcome to Politics Done Differently, a no-frills political podcast for the everyday voter, aiming to engage Australians in the political agenda. Hosted by Katarina Sullivan, businesswoman, award-winning sustainability expert, and political junkie. This episode of Politics Done Differently is brought to you by Strategic Sustainability Consultants, an Australian-based consultancy working with businesses, governments, and not-for-profits to assist them in becoming economically, socially, and environmentally sustainable. Welcome to another episode of Politics Done Differently. We're back in Parliament House and on the other side of the building to a lot of our podcasts. We're in the part of the building that's for the Senate and with me I have Senator Jared Rennick. Welcome to the podcast. Hi Katarina, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a bit muggy today in Canberra, but getting through it. Yeah, oh good, yeah. Well, it's not as muggy as Brisbane. No. It's actually a nice, I quite like the, the wet day. Yeah. Wet days we've had here this week. It's a nice, cool, rainy, rainy yes. day. And much needed rain. Yes, it is indeed. And so you're a senator for Queensland. That's right. Um, you were elected in last year. That's right. How's it been going for you so far? Uh, it's been okay. Uh, look, I'm obviously still finding my feet. Yeah. Um, but look, I'm, I'm very driven to try and get um, some good outcomes, mm-hmm. especially for our children. Um, one of the reasons why I ran for politics is to make sure that our children get the same opportunities that our forefathers gave to us. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so, yeah. And you're a father yourself. Yep. You've got three. Uh, three right? children. Yep. yep. Two boys and a girl. Yeah. Yep. And the girl's the youngest. Yeah. Yep. And the girl's the biggest handful, I'm guessing, as well. No, actually, oh, she's not. No, no, no. We, we've got a, a classic case of the middle child syndrome. Yeah. So it's yeah. probably fair to say. That, um, but yeah, it's it's all it's a perfect balance. And yeah. I actually, before I came into politics, I had a couple of years off where I was a stay-at-home father. Yeah. And I loved it. Oh, it was awesome. absolute, and look, you know, I'd, I'd recommend to anyone if you know you can get your finances and set yourself up for, to do that. To, yeah. If you can stay at home for a few years with, with children when they're so young, yeah. is to do it because you'll never regret it. Yeah. Um, and and probably the hardest thing about being in politics at the moment is I do miss my kids. Sure. Um, but look, it's you know it's a sacrifice that I'm more than happy to make. Yeah. Um, and I know many Australians do make that sacrifice every day of the week. Yeah. Um, but that's what keeps me grounded, mm-hmm. um, and that's what you know really drives me. And how do you balance sort of family life and work life, especially at the moment we've got estimates on, it's late yeah. nights. <laughs> okay, well that was one of the reasons when I decided to have a run for politics, yeah. um, it was a question of keep working, um, raise my children and, and spend a lot of time within the party because, you know, it's obviously to win pre-selection um, for the Senate within the party sure. um, across any, any state, let alone Queensland, which is a big state, takes a lot of work. Yeah. So I thought, you know what, I've... I've you know, I worked in jobs since I've basically been 12 years old uh, at my hometown of Chinchilla, and then I had 25 years of professional career. Uh, and I was about 45, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to step back from work, and I'm just going to concentrate on my children and politics. And, and one of the reasons why I, I chose to step back from work was that I thought if I got into politics, I'm not going to spend as much time with my children, which is why I took that time out, because I wanted my children to know who I was. Um, so... Going forward, now that I'm in politics, obviously I'm down in Canberra about 19 weeks a year, mm-hmm. um, and then I do committee work, and I'm I'm still yet to do a full year, but I, I guess it's going to be about eight to ten weeks away from home there as well. So I'll be away from home about say 28 weeks of the year, yeah. um, but that's that's during the week, so I can still come home on weekends. So it's yeah. not like I'm I'm away, you know, for consecutive weeks, which does help. Yeah. Um, but then what I do then is I, I, I basically. Um, try and then I've got to I do two two week what I call wombat trails and that's mm-hmm. where I go um, and I drive around Queensland and I go to all the regional towns in Queensland so I try to, I, I get to the regions about four weeks of the year mm-hmm. um, which I'd love to spend more time out there but the reality is is just with other commitments I, I don't sure. um, have the time to get there but I, I, I'm not too worried about that in the sense having been from a town small growing up in a small town of Chinchilla. Yep. Um, we've also got property out in Western Queensland and I've got many friends across Queensland who I can talk to. Yep. Um, I feel like I do have a good understanding of the issues that face Queenslanders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, you know, obviously too, like I'm 50 this year, so, um, uh, you know, I came into politics, I've always had the view that, you know, if you haven't worked out what's wrong or what you want to do before you get here, you're never going to work it out once you're here. Because yes. once you're here, you get caught up in the procedures and the, and the melee and, yep. and the 24-hour media cycle. So, 
um, you know, I, I came down here with a, a set of goals that I'd like to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So I'm a long way from the original question. You just yeah. asked me how I balance time <laughs> with my children. So I get about, I'm probably home um, about 16 weeks of the year, 16 to 20 weeks of the year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Plus a lot, you know, probably 30 to 40 weekends. So, yeah. yeah. You still get to see them. Yeah, I do. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And you were talking before about, you, you had a plan before you got here about sure. what you wanted to see. Yeah. What are some of those things that uh, okay. drove you to get here? I'll, I'll give you a couple of general overlying values sure. and then I'll, I'll, I'll drill down in. So, as I said, I want to make sure our children get the same opportunities that our forefathers yeah. gave to us. Number two is I want to stand up for Australians who try to stand up for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look, you know, everyone gets up, they drag, you know, people get up every day, they drag themselves out of bed and they get to work and they put their nose to the grindstone, you know, and they work really hard. And I want to make sure those people who, you know, work really hard are, are looked after and we, you know, make sure we don't over-regulate them, we don't overtax them and we provide, <laughs> um, you know, essential services, which, which is my third goal and my third value is that I'm of the view that the role of governments uh, is to provide essential services to the people um, and not over-regulate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, look, I think if anything, there's been a tendency over the last 50 years, governments, you know, as technology's improved and um, it becomes easier to sort of, uh, you know, reach into people's lives. I think there's been a little bit too much over-regulation and, and not enough um, service delivery. Sure. So, and, and, you know, so in my maiden speech, I actually openly mocked neoliberalism. Um, and one of the key tenets of neoliberalism is privatisation. And I'm of the view that when it comes to essential services and the infrastructure assets that provide those essential services, that the government should always have a role in that. And, yeah. and, and if you look at the energy market, for example, you know, look, it's been a real political hot potato over the last 10 years. And I can't help but feeling this has come about because of privatisation. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of hypocrisy in the, in the energy market at the moment. One of the things we hear is, is that you know, the market's looking for certainty. They're, they're looking for certainty and they want the government to guarantee certainty. Well, you know, you sort of thought about that 20 or 30 years ago when you went and argued that, the you know, for privatisation and saying the market was going to sort everything out because you can't have it both ways because the key tenement of a market is risk. Um, so if you want the government to step in and, and take away that risk, then maybe we should just provide and be responsible um, in the first place, which ultimately the people expect us to be responsible anyway. Yeah. And this is a problem with privatising essential services. So that's my view on essential services as mm-hmm. well. Um, my background, um, obviously I grew up on a farm, but my background's really in finance. So um, I've, got a, I've got some financial um, strategies to improve the economy, yeah. which obviously you know, lift everything else. So I'll, I'll just run you through those, which is effectively raise withholding taxes on foreign profits sent offshore, mm-hmm. number one, uh, lower income taxes for people that work. Um, number two is basically to reform the federation. Um, I'd like to see health go federal and education to go to the states. Yeah. Um, my view is you don't really have, you know, we hear, often hear this term competitive federalism mm-hmm. with health and it's like, you know, that's not the way it works. If I get bitten by a brown snake in the middle of a paddock sure. um, out in the bush, I'm not going to ring around all the different hospitals in Australia looking for the cheapest price, you know yeah. what I mean? Like get put on a put on hold listening to the Spanish flea while I'm slowly you know, passing in a delirium. Yeah. Um, no, no, I just want to get to the closest hospital. So I don't buy competitive federalism when it comes to health. Yeah. Um, and my view is really, there's not a lot of difference between us and labor when it comes to health. We all want good health. Yeah. Uh, maybe ideologically the difference is in how we finance it, but guess mm-hmm. what? That's pretty much decided at the federal level anyway. Yes. Um, and we already do aged care, NDIS, we do Medicare, uh, PBS, private health, so really, states only run public hospitals, so why not bring public hospitals into the federal sphere mm-hmm. um, and then just get rid of eight health bureaucracies? Um, and then, as well as that, you can maybe be more efficient uh, with procurement, so for example, hospital beds. Mm-hmm. And the other big thing is in research. I, I've spoken to a few medical scientists who do research mm-hmm. and they're frustrated by the level of red tape that they have to engage with each different state in, in terms of performing trials, you know, say for cancer or something like that, right? Yeah. So. We should just be really looking at competing against Singapore and, and New Zealand and other countries mm. uh, in, in the Asia-Pacific region rather than competing against ourselves. I mean, we should, you know, we're only as united, strong as we're united and as weak as we're divided. So I'm a big view believer in let's consolidate health. Mm. I know, look, the counter argument is people say governments, federal governments don't really um, have experience in providing services. And mm-hmm. I accept that that's a fair argument. Um, but I would say, well, we, we then push it down to those. Um, so say, for example, in Brisbane, there's different regions. There's Metro North and there's Metro South. Yeah. So you'd still have that level and they pretty much run it 
at a regional level. Sure. So sort of like a super regional council, I guess. Yeah. Um, but not the council run it, but the hospital boards and, and, and the people on the you yeah. know, in the hospitals who actually know about hospitals. Because let's face it, as a, as a politician in Canberra, um, you know, we don't really know either um, the best way to run a hospital. But, you know, obviously, so um, just streamline it, get more people in the front end, less people in the back end, and, and improve services. But at the same time, I'd like health, uh, sorry, education to go back to the states because I'm a big view when it comes to education and thought and thinking that you could have competitive ideas. I love yeah. the ideas of um, education and, and, and what I'd call, um, you know, different thought patterns across different states. Yeah. I don't want us all thinking the same thing, yeah. um, for example. Now, obviously, you can still have a national curriculum just to make sure that everyone's taught the standardised maths, English and some science, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to have competitive um, education systems um, within certain parameters. Yeah. Um, so that's that's another thing that I like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it also then takes away those ambiguous responsibilities. We often get wrapped up in this blame game of which level of government does what. Sure. Um, and my own personal feeling is, and I get a lot of feedback on this, is that people are sick of the blame game. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another reason why I love the Constitutional Convention, mm-hmm. to look at, you know, Okay, feds take health, states take education. Um, and the other thing I'm a really big fan of is um, reforming monetary policy. So I would like Australia to have its own infrastructure bank um, and basically the government to issue infrastructure bonds. And now there's a number of ways you can do that. Treasury, RBA, Infrastructure Australia, and all those guys will have to be involved. Yeah. And, but it'll have to operate like a bank where there's certain regulations and the asset will have to generate income. But that's very important because what we've done in the last 30 or 40 years is Governments have sold off a lot of their assets mm-hmm. that generated income, and they've kept the the responsibilities of health and health and education. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem with that is it's produced an income mismatch, right? Because health and education cost money, yep. and things like railways, coal powered fire stations, or any sort of fire uh, power you know, energy generation. Sure. Um, you know what else have been sold? Ports, um, airports have all been sold. All those things generated income, and the income used from those assets were then used to basically pay for the cost of health and education. Yep. What happened is once they have been sold, our future cash flows are dropping because we sold those assets, but the cost is still going up. And that's created you know, what's known as a, as a budget deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really need to start building um, infrastructure again that generates incomes. And I'm particularly keen on dams, given we just had a severe drought. Um, if we build dams in the right locations, we can use it to um, store water. Mm-hmm. We can use it to generate hydro um, electricity, which is a clean source of energy, but also a reliable ba- form of base energy. Mm-hmm. Um, it can provide tourist options for people out in the regions. It mm-hmm. provides opportunities for people, to, for immigrants to move to the regions. It can reduce flood mitigation. It can um, reduce insurance costs. So there's just so many um, things we could do with water. And let's face it, there's um, as, I, as I would say, to turn you back on irrigation is to turn you back on civilization. Yeah. If you go back to the history of civilization, it really wasn't until they invented irrigation in the Middle East that allowed pe- that gave people a certainty that they would have a wheat crop every year because they could store water, um, and then people started moving to the city. So, you know, irrigation you know, and, and storing water and the way we manage that is a very important um, part of, you know, having a cohesive and, and prosperous society. Yeah. I don't think we've ever had a guest on the podcast that's had such a like definitive outline plan of what they wanted the minute they walked in the door of this building. This is yeah, right. really exciting to sit yeah. here and listen to all of this. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. It's actually interesting that you mentioned the idea of moving health to federal sure. um, and creating sort of those super regional kind of yeah. um, systems yeah. because I know I'm not meant to really put too much of my political views across, but I've... You know, coming from ACT, we don't have local government here. We've yep. just got our territory government. Sure. Um, for about a population of 400 and something thousand, yep. close to 500,000. Yep. Um, and I feel like it works really well because we've got one level that's sort of managing everything. Yeah. And I've always been this big believer. I know it's not going to happen because of how the constitution's laid out, but having sort of 500,000 people per local government and abolishing the level of state government. Yeah. And yep. having sort of yep. more regions like that because it's a smaller part to manage and I think that there'd be less bureaucracy. We'd actually have more money, but yeah, no, that's look, just look, me. It, it's a fair <laughs> point and, and this is why I'd really love to push for a constitutional convention. And, and yeah. I think it's very important that we acknowledge that the constitution isn't set, shouldn't be set in stone. Yeah. 
Um, and, and I'll give you a good example. And there's a couple of examples where the High Court's really in, made a big impact on the Constitution mm-hmm. um, that I think we need really need to address. And this is outside the state federal issues, okay. but it's another. It's just an example of why we, we have to be flexible in the, in the way we govern. Um, and that's, believe it or not, the Franklin Dam's case back in 1983. Now, um, I, I might get the section of the Act wrong. It's Section 5129, but it was mm-hmm. the Foreign Powers Act, right? Yeah. And it basically said, and I'll, look, I'll, I'll apologise if I get this wrong, but it kind of goes along the lines of that the federal government can override the state government in regard to foreign powers or foreign laws. Mm-hmm. And what that meant was because Franklin Dam was a United Nations UNESCO listed site that the states no longer had control of their water Mm -hmm. um now back when they wrote now that may not be quite exactly right that court but it goes along those lines but when the constitution was written Mm -hmm. um the united nations or the league of nations had never been invented right so i asked myself did the founding fathers had they known that now that you know it's same to great barrier reef right Mm -hmm. um we have to sort of comply with these united nation laws had our founding fathers realised how that particular part of the constitution was going to be used, mm. because in a way it undermines our sovereignty. Um, and I just ask myself, uh, I, you know, a lot of the Australians I talk to aren't comfortable with us necessarily answering to laws that aren't set by Australian people. And that's really, really important, because to me, the bulwark of democracy is accountability mm. and the ability to vote for, vote for that person. And, I, and um, you know, it's a bit hard when now the electorates are 100,000 voters in each electorate. There's not much power in that vote, but yeah. um, it's still an important principle. Yeah. Um, and another one is Section 75, which basically says anything to do with um, foreign corporations or, or non-citizens, the High Court gets to decide. Now, the AAT, and I'll stand to be corrected on the, you know, may not have this exactly right, but basically anyone who's a foreigner that, you know, can't stay because of visa rules, for example, mm-hmm. can appeal to the High Court um, over these visa applications, right? So now we've got this situation with the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which was set up to speed this process up, yeah. that if you don't like the decision, so a minister says, right, you can't stay here anymore, your, your two years are up and we're not going to let you stay any longer, mm-hmm. you can appeal that decision. So while you're appealing it, you can stay in Australia. So, you know, people can extend their visas through appealing to the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ask myself... Shouldn't a minister in a, in a dem- democracy? Shouldn't a minister ultimately have the final say rather than an unelected judge on the high court? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's things like that in the constitution whereby you know you've got to say things have changed because of technology. Because likewise, a hundred years ago or hundred twenty years ago, when the constitution was written, I mean people just weren't flying in and out of Australia like they do now, right? Yep. So you know we, we, we've got that issue. I mean, there's two million temporary visa holders in Australia now. Yeah. Um, so it's you know, it's that other question of yeah, other issues. So I, yeah. I'm, one, and I said this in my maiden speech, we really need a constitutional convention to sort out federal state um, responsibilities and those ambiguous responsibilities and the vertical fiscal imbalance. And, there's, and I didn't really touch on this in my maiden speech, but there's a few other <coughs> things there too that I think we've got to ask ourselves, in a democracy, who do we hold accountable? The High Court or the, or, or, or the politicians, if you know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. Um, so that convention just for our listeners how would that work that would involve coac obviously absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and, and we, so the states obviously have to have come on board yeah um i, I look i won't go into the details now i've done up some modeling and i think mm. the federal government the states will have to be better off financially sure. because we can't make them worse off and the federal government will have to pick up the tab um but we have the flexibility through income taxes and um yeah we, we can we have a more flexible tax system than the states. I mean, they have a very rigid tax system where they predominantly rely on stamp duties and payroll taxes. So, yeah. um, and we need to give them greater flexibility um, in that in that process. So, sure. so yeah, definitely through COAG and the states have to obviously all come on board. Yeah. Um, idealistically, I don't like power being centralised in Canberra. Mm-hmm. Um, that scares me as well. Um, scares me as a Canberran. Yeah, <laughs> but we get into a bubble here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but. If you look at the bushfires, mm-hmm. even though that was a state responsibility, ultimately everyone looked at the federal government to solve the problem, didn't they? Yeah. So even though idealistically I don't like the idea of having too much power in Canberra, mm-hmm. the reality is in this day and age and with the media and technology in the world such a smaller place, yeah. um, the people do look, I think, to the federal government more than state governments to solve their problems. Sure. That's my perception. It may not be what everyone's perception, but yeah. 
No, I I would agree based on the people that I interact with and even me, yeah. <laughs> how I do. Yeah. But I'm a bit different. I tend not to look so quickly towards politicians. I look more quickly towards the public service until estimates time and then I look at what the politicians are doing to make sure that the public servants are doing their job. Oh, look, that's a good attitude, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. how do you find the estimates process? I like it. I, I'm actually of the view now, maybe we should have a bit more, few more weeks for estimates and less chamber time. Mm. Um, not that I'm against chamber time, but I think it, chamber time really needs to be reformed as well. Yeah. Um, because that is a very good opportunity to scrutinise both our executive wing and, mm. our, and our public servants. Yeah. yeah. So I do think it's, that's a very important process and it's something that um, I don't think the public is aware of enough, mm. um, but it is actually a very powerful and, and, and important part of democracy. Yeah, that's yeah. actually going to be my next question is, what do you think public perception is or awareness is of estimates? Because I know a lot of people that I talk to have no idea what they're about. No, they don't. Yeah. And um, uh, it's something that I think we should try and raise that awareness. Yeah. Um, it might help if we didn't have to sit till 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> I, 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 and that's another reason, just to, because... <laughs> Uh, you know, if you're sitting there for, to say, just for your listeners, mm. we sit there from 9 o'clock in the morning till 11 o'clock at night. Now, yeah. we can't get up and leave from time to time, which I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, maybe we should have an extra week where we just sit there. Because it's not fair on a lot of people too. Like, they'll sit, to, you know, they have to turn up at 10.30 to give their presentation at night. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's probably better for everyone if we all, you know, work within a reasonable, more, more reasonable hours. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Especially yeah. with technology nowadays, you think that something like that is could be possible yeah yeah yeah. do you use technology a lot to communicate with people and in your work well um no i'm no weird so look i I, you know i I use emails um i'll pick up the telephone Mm -hmm. uh look i I use facebook a bit um i've got to be careful on social media obviously you know it's a bit of a jungle out there on social media (laughs) um uh yeah so that's how how i communicate Mm -hmm. yeah pretty much um, so I guess like that's technology yeah. in a way, yeah. And as a father of three kids, you obviously are great speaking to young people. Do you have much contact with young people in the state of Queensland, or when you say yeah, you're talking school age or talking sort of twenty to sort thirty of up age? to twenty five? Up to twenty five. I look a little bit through the party with yeah. with the young liberals. Um, I, I talk to them a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, whenever I talk to them, I I, I talk. You know, I see myself not as a politician, but as a mentor. Yeah. And I try and give them the advice that, you know, I could have done with when I was at their age. Mm-hmm. But the, the key advice I always give to people in that 15 or 25 year age is do yourself a favour. Go out and buy, so thanks, Molly Meldrum. Go out and buy <laughs> Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon and listen to the song Time. Because it's a great lyric on that that says, 10 years gone and no one told me when the starting gun had happened. Mm-hmm. And my view is that 15 to 25, that period in your life, yeah. is, is the most important in your life because... Mm-hmm. That's when you finish school, so get some good results. You know, work out what it is you want to do. Go and do your university. Get a part-time job. Yeah. Um, because you know what? When you get to 30 and you settle down and have kids and have a mortgage, everything you'll make will just go into your children and the bank. Yeah. So if you, the further you can get ahead mm-hmm. earlier when you're staying home with your parents, because, you know, your parents being what they are, fantastic people. Yeah. They, you know, generally speaking, they... Mm-hmm. Um, They'll, you know, you can stay home for free. So everything you make, you can save. Yeah. Um, and, and by all means, have a little bit of fun on the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is too, like, and, and I say this to the people, you know, the young libs in the party, I said, look, mm-hmm. you know, when you're at that age, don't get caught up in politics. You know, the world's a beautiful place. Go out, have some fun, you know, get out and meet people in the real, real world. Don't get caught up in that fast bubble of politics because it's not healthy, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, and, and go out and see the world. And mm-hmm. look, um, I, I'm being a little bit biased there because... I, I went to uni, I, I did my three years, got my professional certification and then I went overseas. And I actually went overseas for two years when I was 23, thinking I'd be away for two years and back when I was 25, but I ended up staying overseas for seven years. Oh, wow. And it was fantastic and I had yeah. a great time. And, um, you know, it's... And you've got the energy when you're younger that as you get older and you have children and everything like that, you, you'll, you'll get different values. And once you have children, you, you're a different person. And in yeah. a good way, um, and especially for me, it grounded me in a good way. Um, so uh, that that's m- what my advice is, is seize the day, don't sit around, um, you know, sort of waiting for the world to come to you. And if you're not sure what you want to do, just get in and do something. Because once you're moving, mm-hmm. it's, a, you know, it's a bit like Frogger, that game Frogger, if you're moving across, you can jump onto something else. But it's a, lot hard, it's a lot harder to get anywhere if you're already standing still. But if you've got a bit of momentum, you can, yeah. 
maybe lead to something else. So, yeah. Yeah. So you said before to not get caught up in that political glass bubble. Yeah. Uh, what got you eventually interested in politics? What made you join the party? Um, well, basically, I wanted to give back. Yeah. Um, I've had an incredibly lucky life, um, and I'm incredibly grateful um, for the life I've had. Yeah. yeah. And you've also worked very hard for it from the age of 12. Yeah, well, I was lucky. So I grew up in a small town and Chinchilla yeah. had, um, on, on summer holidays, we had grapes and rock melons and tomatoes. Mm. And I, I grew up on the farm as well. So my dad let us have a cup of cattle. Um, so we'd work on Christmas holidays, um, picking fruit and things like that, which enabled me to save money. And then when I went to university, um, I worked at the pub as, um, you know, as a publican, pouring beers and as a glassy. Um, so, and that, and that, you know, look, I'm, I'm really glad I did that because it, it gave me enough money to go travelling, um, which was good. And, mm. and luckily, when I did travel, because I'd saved, you know, I didn't have to skimp um, when there was those opportunities to, say, go ballooning over the Serengeti or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. it did cost a bit of money. I'll see the gorillas in Rwanda, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's just pure gratitude. Um, we're so lucky in this country. It's such a wonderful country, Australia. And we have a, a very high standard of living. Like, in terms of history, we are living in a slither of an anomaly where we have so many freedoms and such a high standard of living and we have to try and preserve that. Yep. You know, it's very easy to get caught up in this negativity that surrounds media and the world and all this, you know, um, can I swear on this? Oh, Negative bullshit <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's it's not good and it's not healthy. Yeah. Um, and, and we shouldn't think like that. It's yeah. um, We've got to be optimistic and we have so much to be grateful for. And as I said in my maiden speech to Zara, I said, um, gratitude uh, is, is the greatest of all virtues, mm -hmm. you know, and um, that's what drives me yeah. um, and, and the love that I have for our forefathers. Yeah. There's a lot of political division nowadays, which is what you were talking about yeah. now, um, with, you know, people who are anti-Trump or anti-Sanders sure. or, yeah. you know, yeah. we see it here in Australia, yeah. we see it overseas, we see it in the UK with what's happened with Brexit. Do you think that that's come about from a disconnection to the real world through this dependence on social media? Yeah, look, I, I'd have to... Look, it's, it's, it's mainly social media and probably the fact we've got more time on our hands than we've ever had before. Yeah. Um, and, you know, social media, and there's so many channels and so many Facebook pages and blah, 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 that it's very easy to get into that reinforcing your view, mm -hmm. number one, and... and a lot of things said on social media you just wouldn't say face-to-face. -face. It's not the way people... But for some reason, they get them behind an iPhone or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and it's very unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Is it something that you're worried about as you see your kids growing up? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's it's the biggest thing that probably worries me with my kids is yeah. this, this world and, um, and the bullying that can come with it. I mean, I, I get it here in politics and that's okay. I'm, I'm getting a thick skin and that's what I signed up for. Yeah. But I'd hate to think that's going on at schools. Yeah. Um, and and um, we've got to be really careful. Like I'm, I'm and, and I said this in my maiden speech, you know, uh, um, with that essential services, mm -hmm. we've sold our essential services, that infrastructure that provides essential services, mm -hmm. and we've marched on into the family home, the classroom and the bedroom and we tell people how to live their individual lives. And that's big government stepping into our personal lives and I don't like it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's very important and, and this is why, you know, and I had 20 years as a single bloke going around having a lot of fun, yep. um, but having a family and that's grounded me and, and this is the importance of families, you know, it's not about religion or anything like that, it's about common sense grounding people mm -hmm. and having your mum and dad there um, so that when times are tough you've got someone to fall back on. Yeah. Um, you know, um, it's, yeah, do you have any ideas, I know this is a big question and not something that you probably came into Parliament House with a solution for, but do you sure. have any ideas of how to combat that toxicity of social media? Because oh, um, it's only going to get worse from here. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's, it's going yeah. to keep affecting politics. Yeah. Um, well, we've got to behave. I, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I find it hard sometimes to behave, I'll admit. Um, <laughs> Uh, only because they rub their cage, right? And and, yeah. and there is this certain amount of... I'll, I'll just slightly... I'll come back to your question too. Like, yeah. I do think that as a politician, we should stand up for ourselves too because mm -hmm. it's very easy we don't stand up for ourselves. They just do the piling. Yeah. So I, I won't necessarily apologise for not defending myself at times sure. just so that people get it. Well, actually, you know what? I'm also a human being and I'm going to stand up 
what I believe in and you know you want me to respect you you'll have to respect us and mm-hmm. don't get me wrong we, we're all milly mouthed and we you know we don't answer questions properly and I accept mm-hmm. all that um, but you know now that I'm on the other side of the fence when the spotlights are on you and you know that if you say the wrong thing someone's going to jump on top of you um, you do naturally become more defensive so mm-hmm. you know, if we're down at the pub having a beer I might say something you know you wouldn't think of, you know you wouldn't think twice about it but yeah. you're constantly thinking am I going to get the pile on yeah. um, so how do we um, make social media more um, you know if you're going to do it mm-hmm. everyone you shouldn't have avatars if I could make one bit of advice you are the person you are signed up on as social media is the person no trolls yeah. so that everyone knew, you if you say you're John Smith, mm-hmm. that's who you are in real life. Um, and that, I think, might slow it down. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's the cure. I wouldn't say it's going to be the solution. But yeah. um, if, if it could ban avatars altogether, yeah. at least then people are accountable for what they say. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably me, my only bit of advice in the short term. It could yeah. be other. Um, the other thing, you could put rules around this and, you know, it's probably a bit heavy-handed. You know, you can only... Um, post so many things a day in your commentary, you know, so that when people start doing the pile on, yeah. um, you know, if you're going to say something, you want to say, yeah. But, you know, other than that, they can regulate comments and that, but then that becomes subject. Everyone's got a natural prejudice. So it's a tough one, yeah. 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 No, it's a very scary arena. And I don't, even as someone that's not grown up with it, because I only sort of had it later on in high school for me. Yeah. But I look at my nephews now and I think, oh my goodness, I don't know how to handle that. Yeah. Some of the things that people come out with. Oh, that's right. I mean, I, I don't know if it would be too heavy-handed to keep phones away from children, um, at least until they're at uni. I mean, that may be a bit hard because, you know, senior mm-hmm. you know, years, they are pretty mature and they don't yeah. like. And, you know, it, it's, it also, because, you know, iPhones give you a lot of flexibility, you know. Yeah. If you know, you, like we live on acreage, so if, if we ever had to drop out you know, when they grow up, drop our kids off at the train station. It's nice to know they've got a phone there if for whatever reason they miss the train and we've got to go and pick them up, you know, from the train station in the city or something. So, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of pros with the technology as well, but unfortunately yes. there's also a lot of cons. Yeah. yeah. When yeah. you head out into the electorate, um, especially in the regional areas, how do you make sure that you're representing their views getting out there? What are some of the concerns of regional Queenslanders? Um, well, look, the concerns are basically they want to be treated like everyone else and... and, and, and you know, it's about a fair go. Um, and, and I'll give you a classic example, and this is something I haven't really rattled the cage too much on yet, but yeah. I intend to do it. Yeah. There's public, white collared, so I'm excluding the military here, I wanna be very mm-hmm. clear about this, this isn't about the military, they're entitled to a defined benefit scheme. But the white collared um, pension scheme, federally, mm-hmm. is a liability of $250 billion. Right now, people in the real world in the private sector don't get a defined benefit scheme, right? Yeah. So what that means is a high court judge will get about seven hundred thousand up until that, you know, around these approximate figures until they're seventy, and then my understanding is correct, they get sixty percent of their final salary until they die. Mm-hmm. So why why is it that you know people who had high paying jobs to begin with yeah. then retire on a high paying pension much higher mm-hmm. than what people get in the real world? Um, and um, it's not means tested or, or income tested, right? So um, that's one thing. That, that's a real disadvantage, yeah. I, I think. And that's a lot of money. It's now, I think the military component is about seventy billion. I can live with that. So it leaves about one hundred and eighty billion. But that's you know a third of the total federal debt yeah. for you know for people that are less than probably one percent of the population who had high salaries. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's this vilification of of coal. Um, and people who work in coal, for example, or even the farmers. So I'll give you a classic example in estimates the other night. Yeah. It was the APVMA. Now, that's the Australian, I'll stand to be corrected on this, <laughs> Pharmaceutical and Veterinary Association. And, and they're the people that moved to Armidale, and I didn't get that name right, but they're the people that moved to Armidale and everyone was jumping up and down at this public service department moved to Armidale and that's corruption and all of that, blah, 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 blah. Well, it's kind of like, given that they're based around agriculture, why can't they be based in a, you know, in a regional town, number one? But they have to operate on a cost recovery basis. Mm-hmm. So that means they have to pass their cost on the primary producers. Now you compare that to the ABC that has a budget of billion dollars, mm-hmm. they don't have to pass that cost on. No. So you've got one public service department that's accountable and it just happens to be the, a, a department that serves the, pe- the primary producers. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet on the other hand, um, 
you know, the ABC, which, you know, provides the central service, I accept, yeah. um, isn't accountable in terms of cost. So um, that's another example. And I thought about that the other night. I thought, yeah, you know, that's a dichotomy there. I mean, some departments, and it's, and it's mainly related to agriculture and exporting, the people actually generate jobs, um, have to be on a cost recovery basis, and these other guys don't. And, and it's, a, it's another thing with these dams. We have hardly had any dams built in Australia in the last 30 years, with the exception of Tasmania. Yeah. Now, as I said before, like dams have so many, um, there's so much upside to dams and we create so much opportunity, wealth for the people of um, the regions, yeah. and yet it's so hard to get them built. Um, and one of the reasons for that is they've, they've now got this, um, they've got to meet these benchmarks mm -hmm. and they've got to produce a return within 30 years. Now, that you're never going to build a dam. It takes 10 years to build a dam, mm -hmm. then fill it up. You know, you're never going to get your money back in the first 30 years but what if you most dams will last for about 150 years yeah. over the long term you will get that money back and it's interesting to note after World War One, um, Hume Dam in Victoria was built mm -hmm. um, as was I think it's pronounced the Leiden Dam that mm -hmm. was built also around the time World War One, yeah. and likewise after World War Two, the Snowy uh, River Hydro Project was built right so you know it, it's a nation building thing but yet um, today we don't see that. Another bugbear of mine is superannuation. 10% of everyone's income in the bush goes to the people in Sydney and Melbourne, mm -hmm. um, the fund managers in Sydney and Melbourne, and they rarely reinvest back in the regions. They invest $600 billion offshore, mm -hmm. uh, but they invest little, very little in infrastructure in the regions. Um, so there's that, and that's what frustrates people in the bush. Yep. You know, yet again, tree clearing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the middle of that trip, so it, well, we've got a property out in Western Queensland, and my family has, I don't own it, but. Um, we've got laws about what trees we can push, mulga trees we can push. There's something like 60 to 70 million hectares of this stuff out there, right? Yep. You can't push it fast enough because it's going to grow up again. But when you push this stuff and it rains, the grass will grow under it, right? Because mm -hmm. you're putting the leaves back into the soil. Yep. It, it opens up the soil because what happens is if you don't push them, you know, being an Australian hardwood, all the grass dies underneath these trees, the soil seals, so whenever it rains, the water runs off the top. Now, most people don't understand that. And most people don't understand that with farming, it's all about the, 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 the land cover. So you've got to have your grass in the soil and that's the optimal outcome because grass absorbs carbon dioxide as well. It's not just trees. Mm -hmm. It's that balance between trees and grass. But of course, there's these restrictions on what people out in the bush can do. But, you know, is there any restrictions on people commuting into work and, and spewing out carbon monoxide? No. Yeah. And it's that, and I'm not saying that's the case, but, yeah. you know, um, let again, you know, as I fly into Sydney, it always... You know, I always, uh, you know, have this bit of a cynical tinge as I'm flying in over northern Sydney beaches and I see all these pools in the backyards, Manly and Whale Beach and Palm Beach, you know, beautiful beaches up in the northern beaches of Sydney. Yeah. And yet there's pools in all these backyards within 100 metres of the beach. And I think to myself, well, you know, <laughs> we've got to be careful with our water supplies in the bush, but yet here we are, you know, in, in the wealthiest part of Sydney and there's as many backyard swimming pools as you want. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and that uses energy, it uses water, etc., etc. So it's those, it's those equality issues where I think people in the bush feel like um, they're being vilified, um, and they're, you know, they're being made to um, reduce their carbon emissions, for example. Sure. But there's no emphasis on people in the city to do the same. And it's interesting, carbon emissions, Australia's carbon emissions have been reduced from about six hundred and fifty million tons per annum to about five hundred and thirty-four million tons per annum in the last 20, 25 years. Most of that has come from agriculture. Yeah. They have done all the heavy lifting yeah. in reducing carbon emissions. And yet, do they get any credit for it? No. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's the feeling. So my, my job down here is to put that view across and to say, listen, you know, all men are created equal. It's a fundamental bulwark of democracy. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm going to make sure that the people of regional Queensland and all of Queensland get a fair go. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. It's great to have a voice for them in this building. Um, Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Do you think, um, you mentioned coal before, it's obviously a very divisive topic yeah. in this building. Sure. Um, how do you think, not necessarily finding a solution to coal or to the energy crisis yeah. or to the environmental crisis that we're experiencing, how do you think we actually just stop the divisiveness around the debate so we can have a positive debate moving forward? Yeah, that's a $64 million question, yeah. that one, isn't it? Um, well, look, I mean, yeah, you know, it's to put forward solutions. Yeah. You know, let's stop talking about the problem and put forward solutions. So, 
And and I'll, I'll go straight to the point here. I'll mm-hmm. get in a little bit of politics for you here. I'll, I'll call out the hypocrisy of the Greens straight away. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a party that was founded on opposing nuclear energy and hydro energy. Yeah. These are two baseload energy sources mm-hmm. that are carbon emission free. Right, so if you wanted to, these guys are serious about reducing carbon emissions, mm-hmm. regardless of you know whether you think carbon is going to, you know, cause the world to heat up or whatever. It's like, be realistic, and they're your, they're your two proven technologies that will reduce carbon emissions. Yeah. Instead, they push solar and wind. Now, not many people realise with solar that a product called um, nitrogen trifluoride is used in the production of solar, yeah. um, and that has a global warming solar panel. Sorry. That is a global warming potential of 17,000 times carbon dioxide. It stays mm-hmm. in the atmosphere about 700 years. Um, likewise, the more generation you have, smaller generation, you have more transmission lines, more switching gear, you have to, and, and, you, and, and a product using that is sulfur hexafluoride. Mm-hmm. That's another synthesized uh, molecule, but that has a global warming potential of 23,000 times um, carbon dioxide. And they also happen to emit, absor- uh, absorb and emit radiation in what's known as the atmospheric window between nine and 12 microns, right? So that's that's the gap where the infrared radiation slips out through, mm-hmm. through the atmosphere. And yet none of that's ever discussed, right? Um, windmills, they kill apex birds, they mm-hmm. kill bats. Bats pollinate over 500 plant species. Um, none of the impacts of what their, their so-called solution are rarely discussed. Mm-hmm. Lithium batteries, I don't think many people realize that. Lithium is an ore that's found in the Earth's surface at about 1%. So you've got to mine 100 tons of dirt just to get, or 100, you've got to mine 100 tons of ore just to get 1% of lithium. And then on top of that, you have stripping ratios. So that could be as high as 10 to 1. Yeah. So you might have to mine 1,000 tons of dirt to get one tonne of lithium or and then you've got to put it through an in, uh, intensive electrolysis process to strip the lithium away from the ore. It gets exported to Japan, uh, Japan or China or somewhere to turn into a battery. Mm-hmm. Then it comes back to Australia. And you haven't even generated any power yet. Yeah. Um, so... And this is the thing, it's all coal is bad, wind and solar good, but you know, we haven't even got rules for recycling wind and solar yet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got to have a fair and balanced argument, but we've got to be realistic if, if, if you want, you know, you, and, and, and we, we won't, it's too emotional this argument, but if you're going to be logic and you wanted to reduce your carbon emissions, I, 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 I think you should at least support nitrogen, uh, sorry, nitrogen, nuclear and um, uh, hydro. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said before with hydro, it's also got lots and lots of other benefits. Yeah. Um, uh, and actually stick to the facts, you know, mm-hmm. go and do some research into science. I mean, look, I'm, I'm trying to read all the time and I'm not a scientist, I don't have scientific background, um, but at least try to get to the bottom of the facts. Yeah. Um, but look, that's an argument that I don't think will ever be settled. I mean, the only, look, it may in 50 or 60 years time, depending on what the, t- the temperature of the earth is, if it hasn't gone up, you know, we're still at the same temperature now as we were, you know, you know, if in 50 years' time the temperature is you know, still at an average 15 degrees across the globe, yeah. Celsius, then people might go, well, actually, you know what, it's not as bad as what we thought it was going to be. Yeah. But I think it's only going to be sorted out through time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've, and I said this on my pre-selection material, look, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones, it's because yeah. we came up with better ideas. And, um, you know, let's let the scientists... Uh, um, you know, come up with better ideas. They've been yeah. doing it for thousands of years now. And personally, I think politics is better pulling off out of science mm-hmm. and backing proven technologies, hence nuclear and hydro. Yeah. Um, uh, because I, I do accept, look, we, I'm not sure, I think we've got 200 years of reserves of coal. So it's not a bad idea for us to um, diversify away from coal in the sense that we should have different sources of baseload energy sure. because the day will come when, when, when one day... You know, the coal's either too far inland, because it's a bulk yep. commodity, right? So it's either too far inland or too far in, down in the ground, yeah. um, that it's actually not economical to burn it, right? So um, from that point of view, we've always got to be looking at new technologies. And it's the same with our iron ore. I mean, I know Australia has a lot of iron ore, but we export about a billion tonnes of that stuff every year. So sooner or later, in a century or so, I, I guess that we're going to have dug it all up. And yep. we've got to be asking ourselves, what are we going to replace it with? Yeah. And that's why we've got to you know, get to technology, um, push technology and, and start you know, um, getting more of a science technology um, industries in Australia to generate income, as well as yeah. manufacturing. Yeah. yeah, well, I know there's quite a few scientists that believe that now is the time of um, peak oil, which is the yeah. fastest rate that we're able to take oil out of the ground. Sure. Because yeah. we're slowly depleting 
the yeah. resources. So from here, it's only going to get slower. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting what you said about the Stone Age because I've always argued that the whole environmental sustainability challenge is a very capitalist ideal. Um, yeah. That we should be driven to do better and think better and think more efficiently in terms of money and in terms of the longevity of you know our economy is yeah we can't rely on a resource that is diminishing s- diminishing yeah oh, totally um, great. Yeah. yeah so interesting what you said yes it's been a very enlightening chat with you i'm conscious of time it's flown past Cheers, <laughs> so yeah. i'd love to just sit here and chat all day but i'm sure you've got more people to pull over the coals at Senate estimates. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I've, I've actually got a meeting at three thirty with someone um, in the ministry who it's a big meeting for me. Yeah. I've, I've got a few ideas. Well, you know, I, I think ministers are getting sick of uh, me, you know, booking meetings with them because I'm giving them all my ideas, and they're yeah. like, "Whoa, who is this guy?" But, um, anyway, that's what I'm here for, and you know, hopefully, I can drive to get you know, make uh, yeah. give our children the same opportunities that our parents gave to us. You're a very forward running backbencher. <laughs> What are some of the ideas that you have for constituents? Obviously, you've got all these plans that are yep. so incredible and I'm sure a lot of people in regional Queensland would agree and would love to get on board in supporting you to support them. How can constituents be more involved in this process and how can they help you push what you're trying to achieve here? Uh, look, they can contact me um, either on uh, my APH address, mm-hmm. um, which they can just Google. Yeah. Um, they can, you know, hop on my Facebook page. Um, you know, they can talk to their lower house MP. So, you know, look, regional Queensland, <coughs> we've got some great lower house MPs there. Mm-hmm. Um, and just say, look, we like what Jared thinks, you know, let's get more dams or whatever. Um, and, you know, write letters to the editor. And, and, and I guess just, you know, <laughs> if, if you believe in something, mm-hmm. don't be afraid. Obviously, express your opinion respect, respectfully. But don't be afraid to, um, you know, stand up and, and fight for what you believe in, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, that can be, you know, mother's group, um, play group, you know, um, uh, when you're discussing issues there or wh- wherever it is, down in the pub or at work, wherever. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I, 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 I don't want to die wondering. That's sort of one of the reasons why I ran politics, you know, mm-hmm. and it's an expression I used a lot um, early in my life for other reasons. But... Um, you know, you don't want to get to 60 and look back and think, oh, geez, I wish, should have, would have, could have. Yeah. Um, and I guess, too, 40s is an interesting part of your life because suddenly you realise you're almost, there's more time behind you than it's suddenly in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mum passed away when I was 45, so suddenly, all of a sudden, my mortality became very, um, you know, uh, uh, right, you know, I was more aware of my mortality. And, and um, so, uh, yeah, you know, make the best of what you got. You know, we're here for a yeah. short time and it's a great beautiful world we live in um, and, and you know, um, try and you know, uh, make the best of it. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe I'm quoting Drake of all people on this podcast, but there's a line sure. he says, I'm not here for a long time, I'm here for a good time. Yeah. I'm here for a good time, not for a long time. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think, yeah, making the most of your time. Exactly. And, you know, my dad said something to me once. He said, you know, it's very important that you contend in life. You won't always be happy with exactly what you're doing at the time you're doing it, yeah. but you've got to remember you're going to live the rest of your life with what you've done. And mm-hmm. look, hopefully I get to do achieve something in the next six years. Yeah. Uh, I do have more doubts, but um, <laughs> I'll try. Um, but, you know, at least I've given it a go. And, and um, you know, it's regret lasts a lot longer than that, that momentary, momentary yeah. pain sort of thing. So, um, and I don't want to die with any regret. So, yeah. so yeah. And even if you don't kick any of these goals that you've still achieved giving a voice to the people that a- absolutely yeah yeah and, and sometimes it's about just starting that conversation and then letting the public run with it yeah um you know and, and that's and that's something why i think as a backbencher we do have an obligation to speak out mm-hmm. um res- respectfully and sensibly yeah. um to push issues along sure yeah where do you think um the public can get more information about politics obviously politics done differently the podcast is a great place to start yeah sure um are there any other places where people can go for information so they can understand some of the issues you've been talking about um well look i mean i I talk about various issues on my facebook page personally um also you can look up the uh liberal parties um platforms they've Mm -hmm. got policies and and things like that join a political party um you know and look and i said when i first um, got over the line I put a post up on my Facebook page where I congratulated everyone who ran in the election mm-hmm. regardless of what their beliefs were because those people felt strong enough about um, you know 
fighting for what they believe in. Mm. And, and, you know, if you do want to know more, the best way is to actually get involved. Yeah. Uh, because there's no substitute for the real experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's regardless of where you know what party you're in or whatever, because you know it's like I, I get on well with a lot of guys in labour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some really good people in there, um, and I know they want the same things that I do, yep. um, and that's okay. You know, a lot of the stuff they see, you know, in the chamber, and it's just going. You know, yep. it's uh, I shouldn't say games; it's serious. But um, you know, <coughs> it, it's not. We don't hold it against each other outside mm-hmm. the chamber, and it's really good. You know, it's strategy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and so why look, you know, it's all about just trying to compare and contrast. And I, yeah. look, I did history at school, and the teacher would give you an assignment, and it would be compare and contrast the, mm. the Middle Ages with the Enlightenment or something. You know, it was yeah. always that compare and contrast, and mm. and that's you know a part of the debate is to put both sides of the argument forward, and that's very important in a democracy so people have a have um, the full picture. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. So we've got a little bit of homework for listeners is for young people to listen to Time by Pink Floyd. Yeah, yep, great album. And <laughs> I can, we can have another whole podcast on music. I love music. Um, oh, talk fantastic. about lots of different music. So, um, but uh, yeah, that's a great album. Yeah. Was, yeah. And I think your knowledge of the Constitution has inspired me to encourage listeners to actually go through and just take maybe even 10 minutes a day for however long it takes to read through the entire Constitution. Yeah. So they're understanding what this building has been built upon yeah and, and then to google it on court cases and that because a lot of it's just black and white words and yeah. it's it's like that franklin dam thing i mean i'd always knew thought franklin dam was about the not allowing the franklin dam to be damned but sure. there was actually it was another repercussion to it and interestingly enough it's funny how we talked about the recent election when the queenslanders rejected bob brown mm. in the 80s when labor was in government yeah. the tasmania the seats in tasmania are all liberal yeah. They didn't vote Labor for another decade after that. Yeah. Um, and I never knew that until just recently. And I thought, well, Bob, Bob Brand's done that twice now. Yeah. Um, admittedly, um, you know, so it's interesting. Like jobs and people's security and that is still the fundamental thing that, you know, because it's self-interest and people want to make sure they put food on the table and a roof over the head for their children. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that there's nothing more sort of innate than that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much yeah. for your time on the podcast. Thank you, Katarina. It's been great luck. talking to you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Politics Done Differently. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please go back through our library for more insightful interviews. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at PD Differently. If you want to get involved in the conversation, please hashtag PD differently. We look forward to seeing you next episode.